What's going on today? Hope the day is treating you well. Wanted to let you know the podcast is proudly brought to you by Muskoka Spray Foam Insulation. If you need your home spray foamed, be sure to check out msfi.ca today. Drew and the crew over at Muskoka are waiting for you to help you with your spray foam needs. Be sure to check out msfi.ca today. We're also proudly brought to you by Boone Contracting. They pride themselves on excellent customer service and quality workmanship. They specialize in every aspect of contracting, residential or commercial, from complete custom renovations, decks, fencing and more. Be sure to check out boonecontracting.ca. Are you ready to go offside? Because it's Offside Hockey Talk with your host, James Roberts. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are lucky to sit down with one of the busiest guys in sports, and that is Eric Angles. Eric, how's your day going today? It's going well. The sun's shining. It's a beautiful day. I got no complaints, aside from the whole pandemic thing. (laughs) Well, you can say speak for yourself. I'm out here in Nova Scotia, right here in Coal Harbor, and it is snowing right now, so... We'll take that for what it is. Yes, you will. You don't have much of a choice. <laughs> uh, hopefully the nice weather's on the way. Obviously, Nova Scotia takes a little bit longer to heat up than everywhere else. But having you on today is an actual special treat. Obviously, you cover the Montreal Canadiens, and we are a Leaf-centric kind of podcast. But it's always great to hear about other teams and dig in a little bit deeper. But I want to ask you about yourself. How did Eric Angles become you know, invested in hockey, and what got you into the game? I think I was always invested in hockey, but, you know, the, the Canadians and the winning tradition in Montreal, it's almost a birthright to be a fan here. And, uh, you know, as, as of 83 that I was born in 86, the Canadians won the Cup in 89. They were playing for it again. And I think that's probably my firmest first hockey memory is them losing to the Calgary Flames and for the first time surrendering the Cup on home ice. Um, and then those famous pictures of Lanny McDonald scoring that goal and on one leg celebrating. And, um, you know, those are, those are the early hockey memories that kind of founded, uh, I guess, the path that I set out on. So it's it's been an interesting ride. I'm 37 years old. I love the game, always have. Uh, growing up, I never had any ambitions of being a sports reporter. I always wanted to be a hockey player. Um, but once it became fairly evident at an early age that that wasn't going to happen um i really wasn't sure what i was going to do with my life or my career and uh but throughout my life people had always told me because of my knowledge of the game that i should be in hockey in some capacity they, they always noted that i used to say the things about 30 seconds right before the broadcasters would say them and they said you know you should do this and um it just so happened that i kind of fell into it after university i had a degree in political science i there's no uh, there's no method to the madness here. It just worked out this way, so here I am. So what drove you, you know, obviously you're listening to everyone tell you that, you know, with the knowledge of the game, but what drove you into writing and TV and radio? Um, you know, a lot of guys think about that stuff but never really stick to it. So what drove you and, and kept the drive alive? Just the love of the I Canadians? Not, I mean, not even just the love of hockey in general. I mean, yeah, I grew up a Canadians fan. Once I became a reporter, that was out the window quickly. Um, what drove me really was that, you know, I'd come out of university. I wasn't much of a student up until university where it became clear that if I wasn't going to apply myself, I wasn't going to do very well. And it wasn't so much that I wasn't capable of being a good student. It was more so that I was distracted with just having fun and being young and just enjoying myself. Uh, 
you know, but when, by the time I got to university, I kind of established the work ethic that would, that would lay the foundation for what I would do moving forward. And I just, you know, I, I, I had knowledge of the game. I had an aptitude for writing. Uh, I had an aptitude for conversation, for, for radio, television type stuff. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I, you know, once I got the opportunity to publish one blog, uh, it was kind of an eye-opening experience. I could recognize that there was an opportunity there to potentially do it more full-time. Uh, and from there, I, I built up my resume in, in gaining valuable experience in different places. I interned. I, I worked for free, which I wouldn't recommend to, to anybody. Uh, you know, your, your work is worth something. But at the end of the day, you know, I was coming from a place where I didn't have a journalism degree. I didn't have any experience in writing television or radio and I needed to get my feet wet somehow um, and all the while while I was doing that stuff I was working marketing and sales jobs uh, so you know it was supporting kind of what was becoming a dream of mine and uh, it became more and more realistic as I was doing it because I realized that I that I was good at it so it's I think it's like anything else you find in life if you find something that you're good at you know it, it always emanates from hard work and passion and all that stuff but we, we are all of us naturally inclined and, and have aptitudes to do certain things and I think I'm a big believer of kind of my life philosophy is that if you start off good at something you can become great at it quickly uh, if you start off at really bad at something you could still become great at it but it could take you 25 years um, like if I wanted to be uh, an actuary or, or uh, an accountant uh, I'm terrible at math so it would, it would take me a good 25 years to become great at that and I don't know that I ever would um, but I was good at writing, and I, I knew that I could become a lot better with some, some serious repetition and practice. And as far as radio and television was concerned, that stuff kind of came really naturally to me. And I, was, and I was very fortunate early on in my career to be around certain people that could facilitate me growing in those capacities. And there's still room for growth in all three departments, and that's why I continue to plug away and work as hard as I possibly can because – the, the biggest pursuit for me is always to just continue getting better. Well, everything you put out is absolutely awesome. And I mean, what do they say? The theory of the 10,000 hours, you know, do something for 10,000 hours, you become a master at it. So, you know, 10,000 hours, a lot of hours to garner. And I mean, you're on your way for sure. Um, you know, 13 years covering the Montreal Canadiens, joining Sportsnet, I believe it was 2015, you joined with them. Uh, what happened there? How did that all come about? You know what? I was at a point where I had been working. I was working full-time as a marketing and sales director for a company, and I was working four different jobs in the media, you know, be it for SiriusXM, CTV Montreal. I was writing a blog at HockeyBuzz. I was doing some stuff with the Montreal Gazette. Uh, I, was, I was all over the place. And I was getting right at the point of my career eight years in where it was like, if I'm not, you know, I, I had enough going with those four gigs to, to make enough money to sustain myself, but not necessarily to have the type of lifestyle that I had been accustomed to or wanting to live based on, you know, different sources of income that I had, that I had gathered. So, you know, when in my application process to Sportsnet, I, I want to make clear, like, there was no job that was sitting there waiting for me to apply to. Um, they had just acquired the rights, a 12-year deal of 5.2 uh Five point. I don't even know the number. Is it billion? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, billion. Uh, right. So, so they had made a massive deal to to acquire the rights for twelve years. They didn't have somebody in Montreal, and this is where I talk about recognizing opportunity and and 
you know, I had built up this resume over eight years of, of excelling in all three mediums of television, radio, and writing. Uh, and I was bilingual, and I was around the team for eight years, and I had built up all kinds of relationships and connections. And I figured, you know, now's the time to go for it, to really make this, you know, the, to quit the day job and make this the full-time career. Uh, and, and really was, in my mind, my last kind of stab at this. Like, it was, if this wasn't going to work out, I may have walked away from hockey and all the different stuff, because I was getting spread pretty thin, and, you know, I have a, I have a wife, and we, we have a life that we were trying to build. And uh, me being, me working from seven to seven, or seven to six, and then running to the hockey game and coming home at midnight, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was tough. It was really hard work and it was really difficult to sustain. And so at the time I, I, you know, I sent a message to just about everybody at Sportsnet that I could get a hold of their email address and said, Hey, you know, this is what I can offer. I can give you a foothold in the market in Montreal. I can, I can bridge the gap in your coverage, which is, you know, for the most part, Toronto centric and, and everything West of that, um, you know, I'm, I'm well established here. I'm plugged in. I have experience in all three mediums. I'm fully bilingual, uh, and I can do it. And then I didn't hear back from anyone for a few months, so that was somewhat discouraging. And right at the point where I was kind of just saying, you know, I'll send one more follow-up email and, and then maybe toss it in if nothing comes of it, I heard from Scott Morton, uh, who, was, who was running the company, and said, "Hey, you know, we've uh, we've been." vetting your stuff, you do great work, I think it'll be interesting to catch you in touch with somebody, and uh, my current boss called me a couple days later and offered me a job, and, and I haven't looked back since, so that was a really special day, uh, I worked, you know, the lesson in there is I worked eight years, multiple jobs, and, and a full-time job on top of that just to make something happen, because I believed in myself, and I believed that I could do it. Um, and I was very fortunate to have other people in my life show support to me and believe in that dream because, it, it, you know, I think everybody in Canada understands to do this job in, in Montreal or in Toronto, competition is so fierce and it's so difficult to climb the ladder uh, and, and establish yourself. And I've seen a lot of people come and go over the 13 years that I've been there. Um, the ones that stay, I have the ultimate respect for, and, and it's it's extremely difficult. There's a lot of scrutiny involved, and and I was coming from a place of, like I mentioned, you know, no experience. I, I had no background in it, and no no journalism degree, and, and no no experience at all. So uh, I knew what I had to do to build myself up. But all along, you know, there was there was proof all along while I was doing the different things that I was doing that I had an aptitude for it and that I was good at it and that, that inevitably I could become great at it and that's the that's still the pursuit for me it's it's 13 years later and I, I think I'm I'm very happy and proud of the work I've done so far but I, I really hope that the best is yet to come well the best is probably yet to come for sure obviously with the Canadians product on ice and you behind the helm you know doing all the articles and all the videos um, you know, hard work does pay off and it shows, you know, eight years of grinding and making sure you do everything right and just putting yourself out there too. And, the, you know, something to be said for shooting your shot. A lot of people are too timid or don't take that opportunity to shoot the shot or, you know, give it one more go. A lot of people give up on it and then kick themselves later on. So kudos to you for pushing through and getting to where you are because absolutely awesome. And as uh, I, I believe it's Chris Johnson always says, you get the keys to the, the toy store. You know, when you're working for a, a team, 
and covering a team because it's a job that everybody wants. Everybody's passionate about whatever their favorite sports team is, whether it's in basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it. If you get to cover them from day to day and make a living from it, you know, you got the keys to the toy store 100%. You know what, James, it's been a wonderful experience so far, and I think it'll only get better even despite the challenges that we're facing right now. And I really connect with what you just said uh, about shooting your shot, because right now, particularly at this time, I think everybody out there should be evaluating their life and say to themselves, is there one thing that I've always wanted to do? And I've, you know, I always believed I could do it, and I've kind of been putting it off this whole time, or I don't want to jump into it. I just think this is a perfect time where we're all kind of locked up here to come out of this and and have a new lease on life and say to yourself, you know, I've been neglecting this for so long and it's something I've always wanted to do and now I have an opportunity to do it. I I should take a a jump at it. I'm not saying you should destabilize your life and do things that, you know, don't have much of a chance of of happening. Um, But you, you do, one of the, I think the biggest thing and anybody could do, and this is based on my own personal experience, but I I think it's one thing to recognize opportunity. It's another thing to create opportunity. You you have to, sometimes opportunity, how do I put this? Like, it's, it's a seed instead of a plant. Sometimes it's something where it doesn't even look like it's an opportunity, but it's just a little small opening that you can turn into a huge window. Um, you have to really keep your eyes and ears open. You have to be open-minded to different possibilities. And even if you're well-established and in a good career and doing things that you really enjoy, you have to be out there looking for what else could bring you fulfillment because, you know, life is about more than just getting up from nine to five and putting in the hours and coming home and complaining about work and having a beer. I mean, there's, there's so many more things out there that are worth our attention. And I just think right now is a great time to be thinking about what you could be doing to make yourself that much happier and living a much more full life. And from my personal standpoint, you know, being locked away, it's funny, like the NHL lifestyle and, and, and being a reporter and traveling, getting all over the place and the odd hours and the insanity of it it doesn't lend to the the healthiest lifestyle and being locked away has kind of forced me into this structure for the last 10, 11 weeks. And, you know, I went two two to three years without working out, which was kind of a well-established habit for a couple years on and off. And since we've been in quarantine, I've been working out every single day and saying to myself that I'm going to come out of this in like the best shape that I've ever been in. It's been a huge goal of mine. And that kind of structure has like, it's changed my life to the point where it's changed my outlook on, on life and how I want to live coming out of this. So there's there's something that all of us can do right now to, to make our lives better, I think, even despite these really difficult, challenging circumstances. And I'm not belittling how tough it is for a lot of people out there from a mental perspective to a physical perspective to a financial perspective. All that stuff is there. Um, but there are many ways to turn this into positive, and I think this is a great opportunity to try to do that. Well, it's exactly it. I mean, you can either look at it as a, as a huge detriment and just sit there and wallow about it, or you can look at it as something like you just said. You can make it into a positive, reevaluate everything you're doing, look at your lifestyle like you are, or look at your job and say, hey, is there something else out there that might pike my interest that I might want to try out? And for me, what I did... 
you know, it was great covering the Leafs and doing a podcast about the Leafs, but I like hockey in general. So I got the chance. I just started reaching out to everybody I could, including yourself, and seeing who'd want to come on. And the response has been overwhelming. But again, if it wasn't for this, I may have never, you know, reached out to more people and just said, hey, do you want to sit down and talk about hockey? Or do you want to sit down and talk about COVID or life or whatever? So it's all about those things of just opening your mind just a little bit further from, like you said, from the regular day-to-day, going to your job, coming home, complaining, and repeating, you know, maybe break out of that mold. That's a great example also of, like, getting... It's exactly what I was talking about in terms of opportunities. You, you, you reached out to different people, various people that maybe you would have never thought you'd be able to interact with. And maybe you'd have never thought that they'd say yes to you, but they have and they will. And that's, that's a, just a microcosm of basically what you can do out in the real world is that if you, if you ask people for things and if you try to do things, more often than not, you'll be surprised that that it is possible and that people will accommodate you or they will try to help you or they will find at least uh, or at least give you an opportunity to hear you out and that's where you can make something happen that you always thought was far-fetched but all of a sudden it's tangible no 100 percent. well for you i want to get back to talking about the montreal Canadiens just for a little bit as well I mean, 13 years with the team. I got to ask you the question. You talked about the Lanny McDonald moment when you were younger, about them giving up the cup on home ice. Is there another moment for you that is like the basically the ultimate low as a Montreal fan? That's something that was like a huge gut punch. I say that because today's the anniversary of seven years ago Toronto blowing that 4-1 lead and losing to Boston. So I say that just to cover my own tracks and say I'm not asking that just because you're a Montreal Canadiens <laughs> cover, coverage guy or a fan. I, I cover my own tracks with that one there. So I'll, I'll go back to the fan days because for the last 13 years I haven't been a Canadiens fan at all and that's that's truly honest. I, I, I don't cheer for any team. I do root for certain players, particularly the underdog type players. I always want to see a guy who... People say, uh, you know, they, they, they don't have it or they can't do it. I love the stories where those guys turn it around on, on those people and say, yeah, you doubted me? Well, who's laughing now? So you must um, be a huge Tatar fan then when he came to Montreal. <laughs> yeah, Tatar is great. I, I cheer for the story yeah. like every other reporter. I, I want the best possible story to tell. Win or loss doesn't really matter. And and the truth is redundancy is the enemy in our business. I mean, a seven-game winning streak could be just as boring to write about as a seven-game losing streak. So you want variety, you want change, and you want, I think you talked about Chris Johnson before, he always says embrace the chaos yep. um, or give me chaos. And Him and Merrick totally are one right. and the same. But they're totally they're totally right about that. It's, it's We want the best possible stories to cover stories that we know people are going to interact with and say wow this is you know this is something i never knew and this is so interesting and i i've i've been able to tell a few on the the occasions where i've been able to tell those stories it's been you know career highlights for me as far as my time as a canadian fan from say age three till uh 24 uh, you know probably the patrick Waugh trade i mean trading patrick Waugh and mike keen two years out of a stanley cup to Colorado, which was Quebec and Montreal's arguably their biggest rival, uh, you know, it, it won them the cup. I mean, yeah, they had Forsberg and they had Sackett and they had all these great players, but the Canadians traded Patrick Waugh out of, out of a terrible situation where he was left in the net far too long and embarrassed by 
Mario Tremblay, who was the coach at the time, which was just a really stupid, egotistical kind of, you know, pissing war between two guys. And did you, you know, uh, before you before you go on for one second, I don't mean to interrupt, but did you hear? Um, oh, geez, I can't. Uh, Vernon, when he was on the Thirty One Thoughts podcast, talk about that and the well, conversation. I've always known the story. I've always known the story with Ron Vernon. I know that they had a, you know, they had a dinner and a tête-à-tête where basically Ron was saying, you know, he. Had, he had kind of fallen out of favor with Montreal in terms of where they were going and how they were approaching things. And then they were, you know, they were, their winning mentality had kind of gone out the window and it didn't sit right with Patrick. Um, you know, I think it was just Patrick being Patrick. At the end of the day, things are cyclical in terms of winning. And, and at that point in time, new franchises were coming into the league and parity was spreading out to a degree, even without a salary cap. Uh, so the expectations that the Canadians were going to win every year, you know, started to dissipate, certainly. And, yeah, so I, I, if that's what you're referring to, I do know that, you know, Mike Vernon had always kind of said that, you know, him and Patrick had had a, a conversation. He was kind of on his way out anyways. Yeah, no, I just, but, when I heard that, I thought that was actually, you know, like kind of peeling the label back a little bit and getting to see some things that you don't usually do. And to hear Vernon say, you know, he ran out of the building that night afterwards, you know, because he was scared because he thought Patrick might say something. I thought that was quite funny just to, to to hear you tell that story about, you know, that being one of the moments, you know, just to add on to it a like, little bit. I mean, they, they, they traded that, you know, the, arguably the best goaltender ever uh, and and probably in Montreal Canadiens history, and that's saying a lot considering who the guys are that are that have been a member of that franchise. Yeah. Uh, you know, you trade him and you trade a hard and soul player with like Mike Keane and, and what you get back is, Martin Ruchinski and Andre Kovalenko and, and Jocelyn Thibault. I mean, it's just, it's a move made in haste and and just not well thought out and too much emotion and there's just too many mistakes involved there and, and the Canadians paid for it for a very long time. I mean, it was, a, they made a lot of bad trades within a time frame there. You know, it was uh, John LeClaire and Eric Desjardins for Mark, and Mark Recchi was a great player and he scored over 100 points with the Canadians. There's no, there's no knocking that. It's just, you know, they made some trades for Chelios for Denny Savard. But but the Patrick Watt trade is, it's hard to find a trade that's worse than that in the history of the game. Hall for Larson? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could talk about a one-for-one and a Hall for Larson, you know. There was different dynamics involved yeah. in that trade. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not a good trade. It's a terrible trade. Uh, Hey, you know, Jeff Petrie from, from Edmonton to Montreal for a second and a fifth round pick is a terrible trade. Yeah. And it's, there's, there's, there's a lot of them in the history of the game. I mean, I think you could argue that if you traded Forsberg for Lindros one for one at the time the deal was made, you know, looking back on it in hindsight, uh, that would, that might have been good enough. Uh, you know, there was, a, I don't know how many other eight assets or 11 assets in that deal for Lindros. You know, so it's there's a lot of trades, but I I don't know if there's ever been one that's worse than the Patrick Watt trade. Well, especially it, considering where he went, by the way. That's true. Well, the the one that I can say hits home for uh, Maple Leafs fans, if we're talking strictly goaltenders, is Rask for Raycroft. Yeah, and you know, even that is a really tough one because Raycroft had played pretty well for Boston for quite a while, and you know, he was a more. He, he was a more established goalie at the time, and that was the reason the deal was made because of the, the network of of uh, 
of players that was in Toronto at the time. You know, it's funny, like John Ferguson Jr., he got so much flack for his work as GM of the Maple Leafs, but I'll tell you right now, I've had a ton of um, interaction with John Ferguson Jr. since those days, and he learned a lot from them, and he, he's a tremendous executive, especially with the Boston Bruins, and look at the success they've had since then. So it's, yeah, he made a couple of deals, but the pressure of being GM in Toronto and, and who's running the show there and all those things are factors, you know, like it's, but, but I'm not, I'm not excusing the work he did while he was there because I, I know that, you know, it's, it rubs Leafs fans in a certain way in terms of the work he did there. But since then, he's a tremendous executive, a tremendous guy. I have a ton of respect for him. Well, the, you know, the only thing you can do is learn from things that you've done that either people view as wrong or you yourself say, okay, maybe I could have done this right. If you don't learn from your mistakes and grow from them, then you're only, you know, going to make the same ones again. So, you know, to hear those things, it's good. As a Leaf fan, it still kind of bites, but, you know, you, you look at it from the lens you have now. I mean, if things were different back then, would we have the players we do now? Same thing for the Canadians, right? So everything happens I mean, for were, a reason. They were trying to accelerate winning there you know they, they had been in this drought for so long there's so much pressure and you know you look at a deal specifically Ray Croft for Rask it, it it's not a secret as to why that was done it was yeah. to, to get a more established goalie and guy and a guy that can quickly help them win quicker it just it, it, you know it didn't go that way in the end no we've seen that story before too or I guess after that you'd say with uh, going and getting Phil Kessel again for a bevy of picks and we all know where that went too so, I mean, it, it shows that accelerating sometimes might not be the smartest idea. Staying the course, as tough as it may be, may be the best one to do. Well, Mark Burstman would agree. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you know, I'd ask you what your highest moment is as a Montreal Canadiens fan, but there can't be any higher moment than the 93 Stanley Cup, unless you maybe have one. Um, you know, I was 10 years old when they won the Cup in 1993, and it was it was everything i mean it was it was the whole world for all of us and you know hockey being religion in montreal and it was exciting and it was entertaining and it, and it was it was very much a connection to the glory years that we had always heard about growing up and that team in particular was was a team that was unheralded but had a ton of heart and a much more talented team than anybody gave them credit for and so the people that say oh it's just patrick it, it wasn't just patrick Watt. there was their defense was extremely well balanced. They were extremely well coached. They were bought in. Uh, they had great veteran leadership. They had a lot of talented players, whether it was Kirk Muller or John McClare or, or Vincent Donfus or whoever you want to name. You know, they, they had a team. They had a real team, and that was a it was a great it was a great win. And it was, it's been amazing, kind of revisiting that as we aired it on Sports Center over the last few weeks and speaking to different members of that team and what they were able to pull off and. Um, that team was celebrated also at the Bell Center earlier in the year, and we got a chance to talk to a lot of the guys. And or a couple of years ago, I should say, there was a captain celebration this year, this year where that obviously came back into the, the picture with some of the guys in attendance. So that was cool. Um, most significant hockey memories of the Canadians fans: Saku Koivu coming back from cancer. That was huge. Um, you know, Saku Koivu growing up. It was so easy to hold him and revere him as a, as a hero. And, you know, the thing about that season is I remember we were seeing CTV kind of cover. They had, they had gone, they had, they had, 
did found some footage of him doing plyometric workouts, and this was like straight out of like chemotherapy sessions. Like he'd go do chemo and then go do a, the type of plyometric workout that like would make most of us puke. I mean, and so you know, he, here's a guy that was given a 50-50 chance of living, who, upon being diagnosed with cancer, said, "Not only will I will I beat this, I'll be back playing hockey by the end of this year." And that was extremely ambitious, and none of the doctors you know, as much as they were rooting for him, were really agreeing with that. And sure enough, you know, he comes back with a few games left in the season. And the, the ovation he gets, I mean, it gives me gives me chills just thinking about it right now. Uh, it's, it's one of the most emotional moments in hockey history. But what's amazing about that is that a few games, I mean, the game that he came back, they clinched the playoff spot. They had fought tooth and nail all season. And this is the season, I believe, that Jose Theodore won the Hart Trophy um, and the Vezina. So, you know, they, they, they had really not had a great team, and they were missing their best player for the entire year. And the game that he comes back, they clinch a playoff spot. And then a few games later, they're in the playoffs. He led the Canadians and the playoffs in scoring for that first round. I mean, that... Those, you talk about underdog stories and the type of stories I root for. I, I, there are a few stories that I think will ever be better than what Sakakoidu did that year. And it's just it was just absolutely remarkable to watch. Well, that's a made-for-Hollywood story right there. I mean, coming back from cancer, you're playing your first game, you clinch the playoffs, then you get into the playoffs, you're the leading scorer. It has Hollywood written all over it. It's one of those stories where it's almost too good to be true that it all happened that way. You'll, you, I mean, I'll never forget the images of Saxon working out, uh, you know, post-chemotherapy sessions and, like, just how sick he looked. I mean, he just looked so sick, and yet he was doing these workouts that were so hard, and you could tell he was just working and pushing so hard to to do this. And, and I, it was just, it was so inspirational and so incredible. He'll always be a hero. And it, honestly, one of the biggest highlights of my career is getting to cover him, uh, as a reporter and, and being able to interact with him, he was my hero growing up. And I never, I've never idolized or put these guys on a pedestal in interacting with them. Or, and I've never felt jaded or, or uh, you know, scared talking to, to anybody. Um, but but Saku was in a different light. Um, he was just to, to interact with him and really get to know him over a couple of years was really truly special one of the one of the best things that ever happened for my career in, in speaking to him and, and getting to know him and uh you know when i when i when all is said and done i'll look back on those times and be very thankful that i had them no those are special special moments now we talked a few moments ago about goaltender trades and you know different trades that were bad i'm wondering during your time covering the canadians and being a fan of the canadians obviously you had the price and halak thing go on where they were, you know, in the midst of either keeping Halak or Price, and fans were divided. I'm wondering for yourself, what side of the fence were you originally on? Were you always Team Price, or was there a little bit of you that wanted Halak? I want a little controversy here. Okay, well, I, I, first of all, I was covering the team at that time, so I really, I wasn't on any team. <laughs> no I team, no, I had no dog in the fight, but I can tell you right now that all throughout <clears throat> the situation with Yaroslav Halak and Carey Price, 2009-2010 there was never at any point not even with Halak making 53 saves during game 6 of the Washington series not even through the hero 
Oaks for the second round and beating the Stanley Cup, reigning Stanley Cup champion Pittsburgh Penguins. At no point at any time did I think the Canadians were going to trade Carey Price instead of Yaroslav Black. There was never even a second that I thought that. So none of that surprised me. And Did it I surprise mean, you that a lot of people thought that he might go and Halak no, might stay? I mean, everybody, you know, it's not in Montreal and even more so than Toronto, but just because of what the history is. It's not even what have you done for me lately. It's it's what are you doing for me right now, and why isn't it good enough? Yeah. Uh, you know, so obviously Halak was going to gain all this kind of underground support uh, with what he was doing and with what Price was doing, too. And, uh, you know, that is the turning point of Carey Price's career, watching Halak take that job, um, you know, there's a lot of young players that come into the league and they think they're working extremely hard, and they are. But that doesn't mean that they're working to the level that they need to in order to be as successful as they possibly can be. And there was a moment there, it was a clinching moment for Price, where he said to himself, I may fail, and I may not be as good as I want to be, but it'll never be because I didn't work harder than everybody else. And that's, you know, when you see a guy of Carey Price's Ability, put the type of effort he did coming out of that in. That's where you. That's where you're able to rise to status of becoming the best in the world. Um, you know, you look at Sidney Crosby. He's got plenty of competition in the best of the world conversation, especially going back in his career. Whether it's Ovechkin or there was a number of other players in the league at the time that could have laid claim to that title. But Sidney Crosby was not only you know, the most naturally talented player. He was the hardest working player you've ever seen. And and many people said the same with Wayne Gretzky before him. So, you know, Carey Price is the same thing. Carey Price, we knew from the day he was drafted to all our interactions with him, to watch him in practice on a daily basis, that his talent level was so high and his natural ability was so high that it was never going to be a competition with Yaroslav Black, regardless of what happened over one spring. Um, we knew how the organization felt about him. We knew they were right. Um, and when I say we, I mean the people that were truly in the know. So, you know, I, I think Yaroslav Halak has built an incredible career. And there's nothing, I mean, he's a ninth-round pick. Talk about the underdog. Like, what he's done since those days and what he did in those days were incredible. But, but Carey Price, you, you have to see him to know and recognize that, like, he was a thoroughbred and, the minute that work ethic took, got, it was never bad, but the minute it got to the next level was the minute he started owning that title of being the best goaltender in the world. And I believe right now, unequivocally, regardless of what we've seen over you know a, a month-long stint this year or a month-long stint last year, you know the players believe this too. He's the best goaltender in the world. It's not even a question in my mind. And I guess the one thing that influences that for me is that, and, and it's the one advantage I have versus, you know, I, I, I watch him practice every day. I know what he's capable of. I, I watch a number of other goaltenders practice as well when they filter into town Montreal, whether they're practicing here or morning skates and stuff like that. And it's just, that's the one thing where if the players say he's the best, it's because they know it's because they face him in practice, but they also face their own goalies in practice. And they, you know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of scenarios that lend to them having that opinion, and mine doesn't differ from theirs. 
Well, also, Carey Price, the person. Absolutely amazing, the things he does off the ice. Um, most recently, obviously, reaching out to those two young boys here in Nova Scotia where we had that tragedy go on, um, reaching out to them, letting them know they're not alone and there's always people in their corner. Those things speak volumes of the, the person and the character of the guy, and Carey Price has always been number one in that regard as well. Yeah, and we, and you know, it, I think it speaks to the quality of the person, and we never would have heard about that if not for the family themselves, you know, saying we got a message from Carey Price. Um, you know, that's that's another measure of, uh, you know, a person being a good person, and I think Carey, in my interactions with him, I, I understand he can be, you know, prickly with the media in terms of not saying much and not wanting to feed it too much, and you know that's really self-preservation and protection for himself in a in a market that is and in a job that has been described as the loneliest job in all of sports being the, the number one goaltender for the montreal canadians and the expectations that come with that but you know as i've gotten to know carrie the person and i have gotten to know him decently well you know a couple things have been clear to me is that one he's, he's a really good person and two he really cares. I mean, he really, truly cares, and it's it's such a it's such a great contrast to what's been said about him at times. Be it that oh, you know, his body, I don't like his body language, and they, you know, he's too cool for school, and this and that. It, it it couldn't be further from the truth in terms of what actually drives him and who he is. He's extremely passionate, extremely hardworking, extremely caring. There have been times where we've walked into the room and after a tough loss and you know he'll give his calm collected answers and he'll walk out the side door and, and to the to the background and kick over a garbage can and curse at the top of his line i mean the guy hates losing more than anybody i've ever met so it's the, when i hear the general public or somebody an old goaltender say something like oh i don't know about his body language or this it makes me laugh because you know we're privy to some things about Carey Price that most of the public doesn't get to see, and and I know what he's about, and I think I've been able to to, to tell the story of who he is on a few different occasions, and that's that's the fun part of the job is being able to kind of change perception on something based on the inside knowledge you gain. So, um, been able to do that with a few different people, and Carey Price is one of them. Well, to speak about Carey Price a little further, the expectation and the pressure. Signing that big deal, we see him with the $10 million deal and also Bobrovsky along the same line. I'm wondering, does that add a little bit more pressure to carry? Obviously, you know guys with bigger contracts have a little bit more pressure over them under the microscope a bit more. Does that lend more to him, or is it just you know water off a duck's back for him at that point? I doubt it's water off a duck's back. I mean, it is <laughs> when you're paid as a franchise player the expectation is you're going to play as a franchise player and none you know i think Kerry will own the fact that for you know for for five of six months of the last couple of seasons he's been really good and for the two months he's been really bad you know like it's and and it's it's a bad combination this year in particular i look at november of this year where he was really bad it's a terrible combination when your goaltender, his game goes down and the team in front of him is playing its worst hockey at the same time. Because a goaltender, every goaltender in the league has a downtime. And if the team doesn't offer a life preserver at that point to, to give that goaltender a chance to play his way out of it and find his legs, 
you know, it compounds the issue. And what I'm saying is true of what happened with Carey Price in November this year. And it's true of Frederick Anderson oh, in yes. February and March. I mean, I was reading everything that the reporters and the fans were saying about Freddie Anderson, um, you know, in February. And, and I think it was mostly February. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, like, I'm watching all these Leafs games. Like, they play defense like a peewee team. They don't, not not a minor, not a junior team, like a peewee team. Like, they just don't even care. And I'm not saying that, believe me, I think the Leafs are an extremely talented team. I think they have a lot of the pieces to get them to being a Stanley Cup winner. Um, I think the commitment of Austin Matthews at both ends of the ice has been much more relevant in the last year than it was before that. I think Mitch Marner is coming into his own. But, you know, I, I see John Tavares leading the way and playing a certain way, and a lot of the guys not following the way they should. And it's just, I think what people in Toronto, you know, I know we're, we're going, coming off price here for a second, yep, but I, I, I just want to make this point. Like, I think... I think when you look at the makeup of Toronto's team, the most influential players are still young. Yep. And so the expectation matching up with that is, is difficult to to balance. And I, I just think some of the criticism that came at Freddie Anderson this year was unwarranted because, yes, he was not playing well enough, but the team was not giving him an opportunity to tread water. They were not giving him an opportunity to find his best self again quickly. And, you know, you look at Jack. I, I, I watched a game... A Toronto-Anaheim game. A Toronto-Anaheim game where I think the Leafs... I want to say the Leafs lost in overtime. Was it Toronto-Anaheim or Toronto-LA? I think it was LA. I think it was LA. It was LA. They lost the game in overtime, and he fell on his sword after the game. I watched the game. He was the only reason that they were in the game. He played out of his mind, particularly in the second period where the Leafs gave up something like... the, the. 40 shot attempts and like 25 shots on net and grade A scoring chances left, right, and center. They went and scored a goal. Two seconds later, they give up a three-on-one. I mean, he, he was he was unbelievable, but I was watching this game and saying like, how is any goaltender going to be successful with the team playing this way in front of it? And I, I know like I've seen, the, the I saw, you know, Craig Button rip the Leafs. You know, I, I saw our guys rip the Leafs. It's like, they deserved it. Like, they have all the ability to play as a better team. You know, the, some of the things that they were doing were were so detrimental to their goaltending. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it was amazing to see how much blame a guy like Anderson took at that time. So I think it puts things in perspective with a guy like Carey Price, too. You know, the Canadians don't have the talent of the Leafs. And when he played his worst hockey, which he'll, he'll own and he deserves to own and he deserves the, the blame for... Yep. They, they played their worst in front of him, and that's that's just the worst combination possible. So I, I think, you know, it's very hard being a goaltender in this market. I think if you look at goaltending now and the way the game is played, every goalie in the league goes through a rough patch for like a month period. Like every goalie in the league, even the best ones. And so it's it's critical for the teams to, to commit to team defense and playing that much better, especially in those times. And I think in Toronto and Montreal, you saw a very similar story uh, in February and in November for Montreal where they weren't giving their goaltending a chance. And I, it's hard to watch a goaltender take all the blame at those times. No, it is. It is 100%. And we'll touch on the Leafs more in just a few moments. But 
The other thing I want to ask you about, obviously, is a close friend of Carey Price, or at least it looked like it when they were on the same team, and that is P.K. Subban. I'm wondering what your thoughts were on the trade and how his career has gone since leaving Montreal. Um, Obviously, kind of a fan favorite. Everybody loves him. Um, Sometimes he rubs guys the wrong way because he's a little bit too boisterous and having too much fun, and some people think maybe he doesn't take the game as serious, but he's a guy that I've watched and seen, and it does look like he takes it seriously, but he just likes to make sure he's still living life. Um, For your side of it, I'm wondering about the trade and just about PK in general. Well, when the trade was made um, with, I always understood how great of a player Shea Weber was. There was never it was the, the trade was never about all oh, the Canadians are getting Shea Weber and you know he's not as good as PK. So I, that, that was not it at all. It was the Canadians made a one for one trade with one asset who was four years younger than the player they were taking on, and contract wise, it was almost a wash. Um, so if Mark Bergevin got a second-round pick thrown into the deal, the optics of it at the time would have been much different than what they were and the way people reacted to it. I always knew Shea Weber was an unbelievable player. I thought the Canadians were getting a tremendous player and a player that fit better with how they wanted to play and what they wanted to do. But they lost; they were losing the deal, at least at the time, because they were giving up an asset that was four years younger um, and very much in the prime of his career. PK, uh, you know, he played, coming out of the trade, tremendous hockey with Nashville. And I would say that when they went to the Stanley Cup Finals and came within a couple games of winning the whole thing, he was by far their best player. He was their number one shutdown defenseman. Uh, him and Matty Ekholm were absolutely incredible together. And he just came up huge in the big moments, and that was always PK's thing. Is that, you know, when, when it's playoff time or when the game's on the line, he wants the puck and wants to be the guy. And, and not a lot of guys want to be that guy, and not a lot of guys can deliver in those moments. And he had done it in Montreal, and he did it in Nashville. And beyond that, what happened since, you know, his season in New Jersey, uh, it's a terrible season. There's no sugarcoating it. He, he you know, came off uh, a year and a half of being not at 100% health, having back issues, finally rehabilitated, different kind of training regimen and, and still a very good, strong, strong training regimen, but just didn't hasn't fit well with New Jersey, A, because there's a major talent deficiency in their lineup, and B, because he hasn't played to his ability. And so I think there's, I, you know, for the people that are saying he's done and he's this and he's that, I, you know, I, I think that's hyperbolic at this stage. I, I can't wait to see how he follows this up and how he returns from it. I think there's a lot of people that are doubting him, and he's got a lot to prove, and it's it's all justified. I think, you know, to the people that say that he doesn't care about hockey and all he cares about is himself and this and that, I, I think that's knowing PK as well as I know him, and I know him extremely well. Um, that's very far from the truth. He does love his life, and he loves all the extracurricular stuff. And it does rob certain people the wrong way, and that's just an uh, you know an indication of what the sport is versus some of the other sports. You know, in basketball and football, he'd be embraced for those things. In hockey, he's an outlier. So, and he's an outlier, you know, specifically because he's black, and there's not a lot of black people in in hockey, and and just his culture and the way he is, the way he's brought up is is different, and he stands out naturally. So it's you know the perception thing 
versus reality is always going to be a factor with P.K. Subban. But as far as like his passion for the game and how much he cares, he cares a ton, and he wants to be a good teammate, and he wants to be the best player on the ice, not just the best defenseman in the league. He wants to be the best player on the ice every time he steps on the ice. So I think this year was extremely frustrating for him. I, I spoke a lot with him about it. And he's, uh, you know, PK's PK. He, he, for the people that say he's putting on a show and this and that, it's just who he is. And he doesn't apologize for who he is. And I have respect for that. Uh, I I want to see him be a much better player than he was this year. And that's that's what I'll say about PK. And I, I, I have gotten to know him so well. I mean, I, I did the exclusive interview with him on national television. I was the first person to speak with him after he was traded. You know, he was in Europe at the time that he was traded. Um, we, we did an hour thing for Sportsnet, and we got all the questions out and, and all the answers out, and it's still living on YouTube if anybody wants to watch it. But, you know, P- PK is is a polarizing player. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Um, and I don't think he cares one way or the other. He just wants to be the best he can be. He was far from that this year, and he's got a lot to prove now. No, he's got a lot to prove, but he will. And that's the thing, I think, for people like PK – it stokes his fire when everybody doubts, and then you come out and you just you like you talked about off the hop about talking about guys the underdog story. Well, now now PK is a little bit of the underdog story because everybody's kind of writing him off. So he's going to come back stronger. I know he is. I love the player that he is. I love the excitement he brings. Guys like him, guys like Ovi, um, even Austin Matthews with the the you know the ear at Madhouse and Kane and all those kind of guys. I like watching guys play with emotion and celebrate and have fun. Because it makes it that much more exciting, and I don't understand sometimes why it's criticized or you know told to be calmed down or not to do. It's to me, it's ridiculous. I love the emotion. I love when people get into it and have a great time, and that's what makes it. And you know, with PK and again with Ovechkin and guys like Matthews, the personality when it starts to show, I think it should be you know highlighted and not told to calm down. One of the most interesting things over the last few years in the PK Weber debate dynamic is that the first time that the Canadians were going back to Nashville post trade, I had a chance to do a one on one with PK and a one on one with Weber that bled into one piece that I wrote for Sportsnet. And in the conversation with Weber, you know, I asked him about PK and the comparisons to PK. And here's what Weber said that I thought was extremely interesting and insightful on his behalf is he said, people are always going to compare the two of us. We're extremely different, and there really is no comparison to make in terms of the way we play. He said, but here's the thing. What makes us different is is a great thing, because I'm me, and I'll always be me, and I can't be PK. And he said, and the game needs PK. The game needs what PK brings. He says and does the things that are good for the game from a marketing angle that I that are never going to be me and, and that's fine but like if we don't have somebody doing that stuff then you know we're, we're losing out so he basically in saying that you know talked about what he you know PK being able to do what he can't do and him doing what PK can't do in terms of his ability to be you know kind of the, the ultimate team guy and the, the ultimate leader um, and the way he approaches his work. Shea Weber, you know, for the thousands of hockey players that I've covered in my 13-year career so far, Shea Weber is one of the most interesting people I've ever met and one of the most stand-up, 
just incredible people in the NHL. And as a player, my respect for him is through the roof. He's just, he's incredible. He's an incredible player who I honestly don't know if he gets the respect he deserves outside of Montreal um, and even in Montreal. I mean, he's just, he's the guy is a machine and he's just so dedicated. What he did this year just shows it. I mean, he, 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 he messed up his ankle really good and people were saying insane things about what was going to happen with him and sure enough he he came back you know a week later and was playing on it and you know I asked him like what kind of pain he was in and he he just he would never you know say much about it other than at one point he turns to me and said if you knew what it takes to get to to get me if if you knew what it takes to get me ready for a single game (laughs) you would you would know what I'm dealing with like yeah, you know he—he's just a warrior. The guy's an animal, so he's, I have so much respect for him, and as a person, so much respect for him. Well, the way I look at Shea Weber, and I've always looked at him this way, whether it's with Nashville or Montreal, even though I'm a Leafs fan, is I look at him as the ultimate leader. I look at him as a guy that you'd want to go into, you know, a game with and battle hard along the boards. You want him on your side, especially with that shot. But he just is that ultimate leader that you want with you, and that's what I see out of Shea Weber. Um, with P.K. Subban, I look at him as, as you said, that leader that does the other side of things. And they both complement each other well if you had them on the same blue line, which you might someday when Team Canada decides to go back to the Olympics. But that's a, another story for another day. Um, I'll, for, give you a, I'll give you a subtle yep. detail about Shea Weber that kind of sums up exactly who he is as a leader and as a person. Uh, taking several road trips with the Canadians, I, re- I realized that you know after, after games when you're the road team, you're you're asked to you know take your equipment off as quickly as possible, file it away in your bag, so the equipment guys can carry it out and get it out to the truck that's going to take you to your next destination, to the airport, whatever. And you know the media is often waiting for the locker room to open, and you'll see that the equipment trainers lugging out the bags and loading them into the truck. What I noticed a while back is that the equipment trainers would be carrying a few bags. But Shea Weber would always carry his own bag and bring it up. So I don't know, one certain point, it was a monumental game for, for Weber or something, some sort of milestone, whatever it was. And we were in the Canadians' room, and I asked a couple of young guys, I said, you ever notice that he always carries his own bag? And all of them said, oh, yeah, that's a thing with him. And he tells all of us that, you know, we're, we're – we're, uh, we don't need anybody cleaning up after us and we should do it ourselves at all times. I mean, that is a very subtle, small thing, but to me, it's a huge thing. It's, it's, it's him imparting how important it is to be respectful and be a real team member and to not be entitled and to not be spoiled and to be just a, like a good, thoughtful, empathetic person. And uh, it's a thing. You know, he, he turns to the guys and says, you know what? You're, you need somebody cleaning up after you. Go do it yourself. Yeah, take and care of yourself. The fact that he he just he doesn't as a leader he doesn't ask anybody to do anything he's not willing to do himself. And that's that to me is the true mark of good leadership. He's the guy's amazing. I'm telling you, he's amazing. No, well, it just bled into exactly what I was saying. Where I, I didn't know any of that, and I already thought of him as that you know steadfast leader, the guy that you'd want to play under or run through a brick wall for. But those little details just shows you that in every facet of what he does, he's that guy, you know. And and like you said, when you were talking to him, 
you know, when you talk to him and PK, it's the same thing. He's just that guy, and he's always going to be himself, and that's just the way he carries himself, which is absolutely awesome. A couple of other guys I want to ask you about on the squad before we divert to the Maple Leafs and then, of course, what's going on with COVID. Um, I wanted to talk about Domi and Gallagher. Obviously, I look at them both as kind of like Brad Marchand clones a little bit. The way they model their game, they're always chirping and, you know, they're gritty and they can score and they can put up the points. I'm wondering for you, watching them grow as players, obviously Domi coming over in a trade, I'm wondering what have you seen from these guys and what is their evolution going to be like? Can they take another step and what's their their highest ceiling, do you think? Well, let's separate them, first of all. And second, I don't think I would would compare them to Brad. I mean, I've never... You know, Domi's one thing. Gallagher's not a dirty player, like not even in the slightest. I mean, Gallagher is a, just a gritty, tough, net front presence type guy. And yes, he will get under the skin of certain players. That's the I've aspect I meant. I, I don't. I don't mean the dirty yeah, part of Marshall's game. I've never seen him do anything that was suspension worthy. Let's put it that way. And here's a guy that gets like cross checked in the face uh, on a nightly basis. I mean, he's just he's an animal. Uh, Gallagher has found a consistency level in his game that I, I'm not even sure any of us thought that he would get to despite the way he plays. And one of the most fascinating elements of Gallagher's game is that people always said if he keeps playing like that, he's never going to last. Uh, the only time he's ever missed game time to injury outside of uh, his first season where I think he had a concussion and missed something like three or four games. And he had a concussion this season uh, where he missed he missed some time. But outside of that, I mean, he broke his fingers twice, taking a Johnny Boychuk slap shot to the hand and a Shea Weber slap shot to the hand. You know, he's been extremely durable, and he has been, he's just, he's got an indomitable will. He's hes a passionate, passionate player who, you know, I talk about Carey Price hating to lose. This guy, he's the most competitive guy I've ever met in my life. And it's, it's incredible to see what he's done as a fifth-round pick and a guy that nobody expected would be able to continue to score uh, at this high level of hockey and, and be able to graduate as quickly as he did one year into his professional career. He's a guy that 30 other teams in the NHL would kill to have. Yep. And the Canadians are very fortunate to have this player. And I think he's a lot better than than even anybody would give him credit for. I mean, he's he's just... You know, you talk about uh, building great teams. Like, he's a guy that you would look at and say, how many guys in the league are a better net front presence and and willing to get into the dirty areas and pot the rebounds and score the goals that some of the best playmakers and talented players can set up? Um, there aren't many. I, I, I Like, Zach Hyman is a guy that comes to mind. Yep. Uh, I don't. I don't think he's as good as Gallagher, but I think he he has those qualities of first in on the forecheck, first on the back check, first in front of the net, taking the punishment, doing those things. Teams need those players. They're glue guys. They're important guys. And I think the Leafs were a different team without Hyman. Uh, you know, when he was injured for a while. But you know, Domi. Domi also, the passion that Domi has for the game is through the roof. And I, I think Domi is a younger guy. Gallagher's, you know, 29 now. Domi at 24 is right on the cusp of really hitting his prime. And he's already got a 72-point season under his belt. And, yes, the production was a little bit down this year. And, yes, there have been times where he takes 
some selfish penalties and you know he has lapses in the defensive zone he, he's been a young player fighting his way and now with over 350 or 380 games of experience under his belt he's ready to kind of finally be a prime player he's got to improve in the face-off dot uh, but you know I, I love the way he plays at the center position I just think his skating is so elite he's got a really underrated shot and needs to use it as much as possible because when he does it leads to good things you know that's why he scored 28 goals a couple seasons ago he was probably on his way to 20 this year uh, even though he was lagging in the numbers and I think missing Jure for a good portion of the season hurt him it hurt his production a little bit and there was some inconsistency there but you know Domi is one of those guys like you think about what he's been through to make his career happen as an undersized guy who's a type 1 diabetic and he explained to me what he goes through on the daily to keep his diabetes under control. It is not to be believed. He's got a book out about it. It's worth reading for anybody out there who wants to know what he goes through. But like, this is a guy that has to monitor every single thing he puts in his body. And, and the travel and the schedule and what they're submitting to is so difficult to make that work. And he's just... He's an extremely dedicated player, an extremely passionate player, a really good teammate, a guy that the guys love. Um, his intensity and his passion is too much at times. It gets him into trouble. He does some things that are not, you know, favorable or smart. You know, where where he sucker punches somebody uh, or or you know gets into a chirping war with somebody at a different point in the game or takes something personally and takes a selfish penalty, and that's stuff that he'll need to phase out over time and get rid of. But I'd rather have a player with that type of passion than one that I have to, you know, kind of get him going. Uh, you know, that passion can be a fatal flaw for him, but it, it could also be his best asset. So, and the talent is there. I mean, the, the talent is absolutely there. So I think we're going to see big things from Baxter moving forward. And it's an interesting subject because I know we're going to speak to him tomorrow on a conference call and he's up for a new contract. And with everything and all the uncertainty going on, I'm not sure where it's going to lead for him. And I, I, I can envision something like a one-year deal happening because it's best serving for both parties. Um, but I think, you know, the Canadians would be well-served to keep this guy long-term. And I, there's been a lot of talk about potentially trading him for a defenseman and this and that. Uh, I just think, you know, I would, I, I really want to see what Max Domi, it would be great if the Canadians make the playoffs because, I think Max Domi is the type of player that would do really well in the playoffs. Well, I look at both him and Gallagher as players that you'd hate to play against, but you'd love to have on your squad. And like I said, I just look at them as those players that get under your skin. Every time we played them as Maple Leaf fan, watching them play and score goals and just the way they react and how they get under your skin even after they score, it just makes you not want them to touch the puck or get anything good going in the game because you know as soon as they score, the energy is there with Gallagher and the energy is there with Domi. They get going, like you said about him chirping, you know, it all starts to feed into the game and if those two are going at high rev and they start producing during that game, it's all over from there because they drag the rest of the team to the fight, much like you said about Hyman. Hyman's the guy for the Leafs I look at who drags a lot of the guys into the forecheck, drags a lot of the guys into the play. So with those two going for the Montreal Canadiens, yeah, it definitely uh, sets up some problems for other guys. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair and accurate, and I think your description of them being guys that you love to have on your team and hate playing against is, is the kind of description that they would love to hear about themselves I think they pride themselves on being those types of players um Gallagher you know I'll say it again you know like 
you could talk all you want about him being a pain in the ass and this and that. He's a clean, clean player who takes a ton of abuse on the ice. Oh, he does. The Zdeno Chara cross check comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, he just keeps bouncing back and and it never stops him. And that just is, it's exhausting. I would never, I would never want to play against that guy. It would be a total pain to play against that guy. But it's a redeeming quality. And I, I think it's funny, you know, I've been, for as long as I've been working on the team and as long as he's been on it, going back to 2012, every prospect that has come up, you always ask the prospects, you know, how do you see yourself and who you want to be? Invariably, like 95% of them say, uh, I want to play like Brendan Gallagher. I want to be like Brendan Gallagher. And it's that's why he wears a letter in Montreal, and that's why he is who he is, because he, he is so passionate and so competitive. Uh, and so hardworking that he's a, he's a model for all the players coming up, and that's why you know people will look at him and say, "Oh, he's 29; he's up for a contract in a year." And you know, we're probably looking at a you know at a decreasing asset. And this, you don't lose guys like that. You, you don't get rid of guys like that. It sends the wrong message. So, you know, I'll be eager to see what happens with him, but I'm pretty sure he'll be signing a long-term deal in Montreal. Let's hope that is the case. And you touched on it just a moment ago, talking about hopefully Montreal makes the playoffs. I'm wondering from what you're hearing and and what do you feel um, the National Hockey League is looking at maybe a 2014 playoff. I'm wondering if that is something you're in favor of or not. Um, I haven't really thought about it in terms of what I'm in favor of or not. I do like the idea. I like the idea of canning the regular season altogether and getting right into it. And if that means extending the playoff format, then so be it. I think, you know, if you were a Canadians fan, I think you'd prefer them to be in the draft lottery. Uh, but that said, you know, the players themselves, you give them an opportunity to play for the Cup. And if they're the 24th ranked team, they'll still believe that they can do it. And that's just the nature of hockey. So, uh, as far as what I'm hearing is concerned, you know, it's not much different what the general public is hearing. I do believe that we're angling towards that as the scenario. I don't know when and where it will happen, but I do believe that that's probably what it's going to be, that we're looking at probably a 2014 tournament and a training camp that leads into it. Um, and it's sort of a play-in, play-off. So I don't know what's going to be. You know, we hear different things every single day. And I hope for hockey fans out there that hockey comes back as quickly as possible. And I hope for all of us out there that life returns to a certain certain sense of normalcy that we all crave and that inevitably fans can be in attendance for games and then we'll have a vaccine and we'll have a better treatments for this situation that we're in. And that's all we can hope for at this point. But based on what I've heard and based on what I know and, and based on what I think... Um, I do believe that hockey will be back this summer, and I believe it'll be back in that capacity or really even extended playoff format. I think it'll be back in that capacity. I mean, as a Maple Leaf fan, I would be happy if they cut it off at the 16 teams. Obviously, you have the Islanders <laughs> and Minnesota nipping at heels, but I, you know, selfish me wants only 16 teams in the mix because you know you look at a shortened season, the Toronto Maple Leafs, when, when things usually get going, they're a run-and-gun team to begin with when the rest is still on, and Maybe they could surprise a team or two and take a couple rounds, but if you go through a 24-team format, who knows what could happen and where you end up. I'm, I'm wondering for you, um, obviously, they're talking about hub cities. Um, Toronto has been cleared. 
Um, Arizona apparently is about to be cleared on the 15th as a place to go play. Um, the reporting on things hasn't been the greatest. Um, I'm wondering, on your scope of things, do you think doing hub cities for certain divisions would be the smart way to do it, or should everybody be sequestered one spot and all teams just meet there? Yeah, I don't know. I'm unqualified to, to, <laughs> to answer, to be honest with you. It's really not my domain, and, and it's really not the NHL either. It's really going to be up to the politicians and the scientists and the, the medicine you know, medicine people. That's really uh, <laughs> not good English here, but... The medical community. Those, it, it's going to be up to the medical community to decide how that stuff gets done in conjunction with the National Hockey League. And, you know, I'm the only thing I'm for is the safest possible scenario for this yeah. to happen. If they are truly intent on making it happen, they need to find the safest way to do it. And regardless of what that means in terms of asking players to do this or that, you know, they're going to have to decide for themselves whether or not it's worth it, and they're going to have to vote on it, and we'll see what happens. But I don't have a situation of preference other than to say that I, I just hope it you gets know, back they, on the ice. They, that it gets back on the ice and that it's done in the safest way possible and that nobody is exposed to something for any reason that they, they shouldn't be. You know, like it's, there should, there should be, I don't know if you can be in a zero risk scenario, but as your angle should be to be as close to zero risk as possible. Well, I look at this, uh, this past weekend, we had the UFC do their event and they're doing more. Um, obviously they pulled one fighter for testing positive for the coronavirus. So, it's a little bit of a testing balloon. You're floating it out there, seeing what happens. Um, I'm sure every league is watching with vested interest of how the testing goes, how you make sure everybody's good. But it is such a smaller sample size because it's only a fighter and his team, a fighter and his team, and there's not that many fighters on each card. Whereas in you have hockey teams, you don't just have the players, you have the coaching staff, you have everyone else there from the equipment managers to you know physiotherapists, you name it, they're all there. So they're all on hand, so there's a lot more people to test. But I think dipping your toe in the water here with this event on the weekend and seeing how that plays out could lead into how to do the testing and how to make sure everybody's safe and what do you do from here and there. But I do agree with you. I think it'll be back in the summer. And what better way to cap off, you know, kind of a horrible winter, a not-so-fun spring than to have a beautiful summer day sitting out on a patio or a deck and watching Stanley Cup playoff hockey? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the NHL is thinking that way, and uh, and I hope people will do the same, and I'm sure they will, and I think there will be, I think, you know, when you talk about an extended playoff format in 2014, is potentially involved, um, even if you're a Maple Leafs fan and you'd prefer that the, the pool be shortened and, and give your team the best chance to win, um, there's going to be something extremely compelling in that angle itself, because we know how close the NHL is. Um, there's not much separating the teams at the top from the teams, you know, in the middle and towards the back of the pack and not necessarily all the way at the bottom. So, yeah, you know, in a two to three game series, any team can win. And it, it's, uh, it definitely upsets the apple cart and, ch and changes things around. And I think that dynamic in itself is something worth tuning into. Uh, but also, you know, we all know and love playoff hockey and, I think we'll take it whenever we can get it, especially with this uh, extensive period of, you know, not knowing when it'll be back and how long it's been out. So I, I, I would welcome it back. I hope it comes back. I hope to cover it, and I'll cross my fingers on that. 
No, well, it would be the most Canadian thing for a Canadian team to finally win the Stanley Cup and not be able to have a parade or any fans in the building to celebrate it. It would be the way it would go the year a Canadian team decides to win the Cup. So are we talking Leafs before we go here or what? Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about the Leafs. I just wanted to touch on that there. Um, so i got to ask you, there's only one question I want to ask you. From your perspective, covering the Montreal Canadiens, looking at the Toronto Maple Leaf season as a whole, how tumultuous it was with everything that went on, what was an outsider's look at it with the Babcock situation, the team going on losing streak, the effort being questioned? We talked about that a little bit there when we talked about Freddie. But I'm wondering from your side of things, what did it look like not in the city of Toronto? Sorry, I just got caught on the fact that you said tumultuous. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that word before, but I think you meant tumultuous. Yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's a little bit of a busy workday brain. I, I oh, do no, no, this stuff here that I do when I do my podcast. I actually do it on my lunch break during my workday. So I don't okay. eat lunch. I just go right into this. Here we go. That explains Tromopulus. <laughs> um, leaf season. I think the Leaf season can be categorized in one game, and that one game was played against Carolina. Uh, I think the score finished eight six. The, the ultimate <laughs> comeback. Toronto's favor, yeah, the ultimate comeback. <laughs> I watched that game, and for as exciting as that game was, I think the Leafs should have lost it by about six goals. I mean, it was just, it was so indicative of how they play the game, and, and for as exciting as it was, and to see, you know, Marner and Matthews produce what they did towards the end of that game. It was incredible, but I remember watching through the second period and texting a couple of people and just being like, I mean, this is a joke. Like, they, they just, what they give up is a joke. And, and, like, they should just get crushed in this game. And they were getting crushed. Um, it, it, that, to me, is where there's a disconnect. And, like, for all the stuff that was said about Mike Babcock, and I understand, you know, he needed to go, and the stuff that he did was just, I didn't really understand the aim of it. But I do know that his objective this whole time was to take this extremely talented group and convince them to play a more boring hockey game because he knew that they were good enough to get through the regular season and he wanted to to explain to them what it takes to win. And I like what Sheldon Keefe brings and I like the mentality of Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe and what they think about the game and how they see the game and how they want to play it and how they want to get the best out of the talent they have. And I think at the end of the day, they may end up proving everybody wrong if this team is able to pull it together and win. Um, but they're taking a big gamble with that because most people know that you know the, the formula to win come playoff time is, is defense and goaltending and playing a certain structured way because you don't get away in the playoffs with the stuff you get away with in the regular season. And the game tightens up and it becomes you know no holds barred, less penalties, and, you know, as much as we don't like the fact that there's a difference in the officiating from regular season and playoffs, it's a reality that every team has to deal with. So, you know, there's no part of me that watches the Leafs play games like they did against Carolina and says, okay, they're going to win the Stanley Cup. No. You know, they're not going to win it playing that way. But I have allowed for the, the possibility in my mind that they can't. And if they do, they will likely it will likely have a major impact on how teams build themselves and how they try to win. I think if they're able to accumulate some better pieces on defense, 
you know, they, they become that much closer. I think if people and the young players on the team start to really buy into Tavares' leadership by example, they'll be better off. I think that'll take more of a hold next season. I mean, you look at this year, and the joke was made that when Babcock got fired was the day John Tavares actually got to be the captain of this team, um, you know, because he got to be the voice, and finally it wasn't Babcock's way for everything. And that's not saying that the way Babcock was doing things was wrong. Obviously, I'm far to say anything about it, but just just the look of it, the breath of fresh air when Keith got there and the way he's got them doing different things and the strides that they've taken, is it perfect? No, but... I think after a full off season in a training camp and the whole nine yards would be better. But again, you're not going to get that this year. But I think a full season of John Tavares as a captain and as that voice and being encouraged to be that voice more so, I think it'd be perfect for the Leafs. Yeah, I also just think though that his example that he sets on the ice, and when I watch Toronto play and I watch most of their games, he's such a good leader. I mean, he just he plays so hard at both ends and. Despite the fact that you know skating is probably, even though it's not it's not bad, it's far from the best part of his game. Yep. He work he works so hard at both ends of the ice, and it's just that to me is where some of the younger players on the team who are on their way up, who have the talent and have the ability to be every bit as good as Tavares, if not better than him, need to have that same level of commitment. They just they need to, and if if they do, it's a whole different ball game, and it doesn't change the fact that they could be an all-out assault offensive style team. But they need to commit to playing a certain way and doing the things that you need to do, the, the fun, the stuff that's not as fun to do. And like you know, under Keith, I, I think you make a really great point that it'll be interesting to see over a full season versus a guy parachuting in halfway in. There was definitely a honeymoon phase, and people said, okay, this team is really going to hit its stride, and here we go. And they did for a 15, 16-game stint. And then what followed that was some really concerning stuff that, again, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, really all fell on Frederick Anderson's shoulders. Yep. But it really wasn't all his fault. It wasn't even close to all his fault. So there's a lot of growing pains that come with building a winner. And like I, like I said at the beginning, I've speak, spoken with executives in Toronto's uh, you know, organization that have said the same to me that you know their, their best players are still young players, and so the, that that gap between what's expected versus where they actually are in the process is difficult to bridge. You know, Mike Babcock came in and said there will be pain, and there was almost none of it. There was almost none of it when they you know they made the playoffs quickly. They this this rebuild was accelerated dramatically with the arrival of Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. And, you know, it, it takes time to really learn how to win in the league, and it takes a couple of devastating losses, unfortunately, in a playoffs to a, an arch rival like Boston to find the way. Uh, and I just think this year with some of the, 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 the turmoil with Babcock and Keith taking over and the team just not playing to expectation from day one, they had a hard time reversing the momentum and changing it all together. And they have a lot of work to do to change perception outside of Toronto of what their team actually is. And I think, you know, they'll make some smart acquisitions they already have. Uh, I won't call it this offseason because we're not necessarily in the offseason yet, but they've made some, some good acquisitions moving forward. And they have a lot of work to do from a cap perspective to, uh, to make it all work, and things are going to change naturally. I think Jake Muzzin might be the most underappreciated player 
in the organization. Oh, 100%. He's a, he's a vital, vital player for them in terms of his commitment and what he does on the defensive end and what he can do to make a lot of players around him look better without taking the credit. Um, they need they need a couple more players like that. They need a couple more players like that that have that kind of dedication uh, and that ability on the defensive end. And, and if they get that, then watch out because they have the, the talent and the ability to be a Stanley Cup winner. There's no question. Well, you look at the team like Toronto, and, and something Keith has said a whole bunch of times, you, you talked about it a little bit there, these guys are still young. The maturity factor needs to be there. You know, like you said, learning to win and have it bred into them. That's why they brought in guys like Jason Spezza, Patrick Marlowe. Uh, signing Tavares was huge for that, but it's getting that ingrained into yourself, and I think these guys are starting to learn on it. You talked a little bit about Austin Matthews and his 200-foot game and how it's growing, and that's only because you're learning the whole game. You're learning to play fuller. Just same thing with Mitch Marner. And I look at Zach Hyman. Each year it seems like he's taking a step, not only offensively, but just in what he does. He's just very tenacious on the puck. And I think underneath Keefe, it's just he seems to have a better feel of where guys need to be. And I look at one guy in particular, and he, he probably won't be here next year, but in Tyson Berry, you know, it's very funny. You put a guy in a spot to succeed on the power play and, you know, let him move his feet and do what he does, and his game turns around. He becomes that guy getting you points, and the confidence comes back, and, you know, the fans start to turn back over and liking the guy again. You know, and to speak on, you know, like you said about Shea Weber uh, being a little underappreciated sometimes in Montreal, right now, I don't know if you foray too much into the world of uh, Twitter, but they are ripping apart the deal for John Tavares and the fact that he's a Maple Leaf and maybe they shouldn't have done it. And that's Toronto fans doing that. And I see no reason for it. I love Tavares. I love what he brings. I love everything he brings. Um, I think it's just people being at the end of the rope for the quarantine. But to see people say that, you know, oh, he's overrated and he shouldn't be the captain, and it just blows me away because it's like, are you watching the same things? Are you, are you participating the same way that I am? Because you watch what he does, and it's just like, I don't understand where you're coming from. I'm wondering uh, for you, know, you do you see you that? Two, if, if you had two more players with his ability to play the way he plays, we probably wouldn't be talking about the Leafs in the terms that I was just describing them. And, yep. And I don't... You know, I don't care about people say, "Oh, he's from Montreal and he says this." And that. I don't. I really don't care. Um, I watch them just like I do the Canadians with a very objective lens. And you need you need you need more players like that guy. And look, I, I you know the William Nylander thing. I, I love William Nylander and the way he plays. He's so incredibly talented. This guy, um, but I never I never understood. I, I think. The only mistake, one of the only mistakes Kyle Dubas has made as general manager was when he came out and said, we can and we will about signing all those guys. And he really, he kind of painted himself into a corner and I yep. think he wanted to deliver on that promise. And, you know, you had the whole hockey world outside of it saying, just trade Nylander and get a defenseman. And that's what you need. Yeah. Um, and you still have most people, I mean, I speak to, Luke Fox about the Leafs and he says I wouldn't trade Nylander you know I, I think he's great and this and that and to me it's never been about whether or not he's really good or not because there's no question he is and he might be I don't want to say he's the most talented out of those three guys but he's right up there I mean he's from, as a power play player and, and uh, 
five on five and all the things he can do as a playmaking ability. His shot is elite. He has an elite shot, a, a really incredible shot. His wrist shot is unbelievable. I just, you know, I think it's too much of the same thing and, and something that you're lacking. And it's funny too, because, you know, the guys that always get mentioned as trade candidates are Kapanen and Janssen because you get a bit of cap relief and they're good value and they probably have good value and can net you something in return. But, you know, I watch the way Kapanen plays. Not a guy I would want to trade with. Uh, really good penalty killer, really good at both ends of the ice. Um, hockey sense, you know, at times I think people have questions about and, and finishing ability is not quite what people want to see. And there's just certain players that are like that. You know, they, they get a lot of opportunities and don't finish as much as you'd like, but they do a lot of things away from the puck that lend to them being valuable players. I, I just think... You know, you have a lot of talent up front, and you have guys who are. Uh, what are, What are the cap hits for Capitan and Johnson? Are they two point four or four? Or uh, no, it's it's three. Million? I think it's three point four and three point six. Three point four and three point six. I mean, those are great value players. That's kind of exactly what you need in this cap world. Um, and you get players who are performing above what they're being paid. You know, so. Those are the guys that I'm looking to keep, not necessarily deal. But I do understand why they often come up in trade rumors because there's so much, even from management, a desire to keep the most elite talent players and to execute this system that they want to execute, which is basically to outscore everybody uh, by a wide margin or outchance them uh, significantly and play that offensive style and that puck possession style. But are you losing that much if you move Nylander for a defenseman? I, I just think that should have been, that's the move that should have been made while he was in a contract holdout, or wait, even before it got to that. And now, now that he's signed and under contract, and probably what's going to look like a pretty good value deal in comparison with Marner and, and Matthews, um, it, it's a complicated situation for them to, to, to navigate, but you know, it's one that might their hand might be forced, especially with what, what might happen with the salary cap moving forward. So it, it, there's no question, in, you know, no matter how people see my opinion about the Leafs as a Montrealer or your opinion as a Leafs fan, I think we probably all would come to a consensus on the fact that what this team is lacking most is, is defense. That is where they have a deficiency. And some people in Toronto have dismissed it as a problem, because they say it's not the it's not the style of the team and it doesn't really matter, but it, in my opinion, it's been proven time and time again that it does, and that's you know until the Leafs go out and win the cup with how they're built and prove us all wrong, um, it, my opinion is not really going to change on it. No, trust me, I'm in the same boat. I've always said they need to shore up the defense, and if they do that, then watch out. But, I mean, what they're doing right now with nibbling around the edges, signing, you know, KHL free agents or, you know, getting college players or even bringing young guys up through the system like a Sandine and a Lilligren, you know, they will be impact players. They will do well, but they need someone to be in there now. And I'm not saying go out and get, you know, an Alex Petrangelo where he's going to be a free agent. I'm saying maybe another guy like Jake Muzzin, um, you know, a shutdown hard-nosed kind of guy that can fill that void for you. Um, you have a lot of guys who can move the puck. You look at Dermott's ability, you look at Riley, Sandine, Lilligren, you touch on all those guys that are, that are there. You need one more of those guys, if not two. And 
it seems what they're lacking is just a defensive conscious conscious I can't even say the word um you know when Muzzin was out that was a problem you know you look at um Justin Hall when he played with Muzzin the two of them were great but as soon as Muzzin was gone Hall's game kind of suffered as his minutes went up and he didn't have that partner to fall back on so you need that kind of player you need those players to do that and you know correct me if I'm wrong but the way you win hockey games is not only scoring more than your opponent but also keeping the puck out of your own net so if you can't do that and can't defend, then you're going to be in for a battle every night. And some nights you're not going to score four or five or six goals. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I don't want it. To, I don't want it to come across as an unnuanced view because I understand what the Leafs are trying to do and how they're trying to play. And this is, you know, this has proven effective for Dubas specifically, from Sault Ste. Marie to Toronto Marlies to Toronto Maple Leafs. And you know, I think anybody out there would tell you hockey players or management or reporters or fans that the Leafs are one of the best teams in hockey. The thing is, is that I could tell you from speaking to players on different teams and different teams that are playoff playoff teams that they don't particularly fear playing that team in the playoffs. Maybe they should. And maybe they should fear that offense because the fact is they can score at will if they're on. Um, and that's something that's extremely difficult to defend. But there's no team going into the playoffs, be it the Philadelphia Flyers or the Boston Bruins or those types of teams that say to themselves, oh, I really don't want to play the Leafs in the first round. And that could change with a couple of key acquisitions and smart value acquisitions. Um, and from a cap perspective, I think the only way to do it is, to, unfortunately, to bite into that that major elite talent crop at the top end and keep value guys at $3.4 million on their contract. That's just my personal opinion. It probably doesn't wash well with some of the people who love how this team is built and what's, you know, what, what it's being built as. But I, I can tell you, speaking to different players and from different teams, that they don't, and rightly or wrongly, they don't fear playing the Leafs in the playoffs. And I think the Leafs, justifiably, are a couple pieces away on that back end and, and, and a commitment level away from how they play the game to striking that fear in their opponents. And maybe it'll change come playoffs. Like I said, I'm, I'm very open to the idea that their way of doing it could prevail and change the way hockey is played and the way team building is done. Well, we know uh, the NHL is a copycat league. You know, you watch the heavy teams won, everybody went heavy. You know, you mix it up like the Pittsburgh Penguins did, everybody went that way. You know, so, and then you had the tandems for goaltending, then every team tried to build a tandem themselves. So, it's always a copycat. So, if the Leafs were to go on and have success, I could see them being a team that is copied and their blueprint being the new blueprint of what you built your team around. That being said... As a diehard Leaf fan, I have a hard time seeing them going deep against teams like Boston, or even if they got to the finals by some fluke of a miracle, getting past a team like St. Louis. Um, it just doesn't, they don't seem to have that, that it factor yet. And like you said, a few key acquisitions may change that. But one thing you can hang your hat on when you talk to players from the Boston Bruins, they say that playing the Maple Leafs last year was their hardest opponent. So that is something to say that they are taking the right steps. They're just not there yet. Well, let's just remember that that was under Mike Babcock. True uh, enough. 
and the Leafs play a, a different style under Sheldon Keith than they did under Babcock. So, and I'm not saying that one is better than the other or whatever. I'm just saying that, you know, Babcock, for all the criticism he took and this and that, there was never any ambiguity about what Babcock was trying to do with the Maple Leafs. He was trying to turn them into winners and trying to get them to understand and commit to a certain level of play uh, and certain aspects of the game that they need to commit to in order to be successful. And I don't think he was ever wrong on that. His approach was didn't, didn't work and, and wasn't right, and he needed to go when he went. But let's not be mistaken about what he was trying to do while he was there. And I, I know Sheldon Keith wants to win. I know Kyle Lewis wants to win. I know they're going to do everything they can to put a winner on the ice. Um, I'm very impressed with Dubas as an executive in terms of the way he carries himself uh, his intelligence level, uh, his, his embracing of the analytics and everything he stands for, and, and his philosophy on how he wants the game to be played and how committed he is and how sh- strength that he's shown in, in his commitment to, to that style of play and, and decisions he's made that reflect that in terms of who he signed and who he's hired and fired and, and sticking his guns and being a strong general manager. It's a difficult thing to do with a young guy at his age, so... I have a lot of respect for Dubas. Um, Sheldon Keith, by all accounts, is a great coach. And we're going to see what develops with this team moving forward. And I, I think the expectations are sky high. I think they should be, given the talent that the team has. And we'll see what they do. Listen, I want to say thank you very much. I know you're super busy with everything. But I know these are trying times. And it's great to get these conversations in. Have some fun. Take people's minds off things. Well, uh, I wish you and your, your family all the best you as well my friend and i thank you very much again and i hope to get to speak with you when the season does resume all right good stuff we'll talk to you soon bye all right so as you heard that was eric angles from sportsnet that is a long chat a lot to unpack be sure to listen to each and every bit listen to every offside episode that is offside for today (laughs) 